into the abyss so you don't have to this is hell today on this is hell you know that guy who won nearly all the primaries last night who was seemingly anointed by the media based on name recognition alone as the democratic party nominee for president this year the one we are being told to vote for by everyone not because of what he stands for but what he has done, or not what he's done, or anything like that, or his record, or his policies, but because he is the only candidate who can beat President Trump in November. Yeah, he might not be the person you think he is. Don't get me wrong, Joe Biden's not much worse than any of the other Democrats. That's why Bernie Sanders is doing so well. Democrats are tired of the Democratic Party and who they voiced on their membership as their presidential candidate every four years. Like most Democrats, Biden is against New Deal-like policies, including universal health care. Stocks, especially health care stocks, went through the roof after his stupid Tuesday wins last week, revealing that Biden is very accommodating to Wall Street, especially in the health care sector, which showed the biggest gains following Biden's victories. He has voted to cut Medicare, Medicaid, has supported limiting Social Security. He's backed wars, including the invasion and occupation of Iraq. He helped usher in neoliberalism. Like Trump, his family has financially profited from his political connections. And as our guest today writes, Biden was one of the chief architects of a racist system of mass incarceration and showed a career-long willingness to sacrifice African-American communities for political survival. In fact, Biden's actions actually led to Donald Trump, and it's possible this successful run for president this year might bring about something far worse than Trump in 2024. I know, I'm scared too. In a few minutes, we'll talk to staff writer for Jacobin Magazine and author of the book, Yesterday's Man, The Case Against Joe Biden, Branko Marchetich, who is co-host of the One of 200 podcast. You can follow on Twitter at the number one of the number 200 podcast. You can follow Bronco on Twitter at Brie, B, sorry, B Marchetich. B Marchetich. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap tooth radio show host, Chuck Mertz. Producing this week's show is Alex Jerry. How are you doing, Alex? Anything new about you? Uh, I was working on this show, starting to get kind of depressing. Mm. <laughs> yes, in general. I mean, yes. Was it this depressing like 15 years ago? It was this depressing on day one. <laughs> it was always a very depressing show. We only had light breaks of that with uh, having people like Wesley Willis in the studio. So, yeah. Damn, we should get Wesley. Oh, <laughs> oh damn it. See, <laughs> it's always depressing. This week's question from Al is, what's the best thing you can do for the world with your smartphone? What's the best thing you can do for the world with your smartphone? You, you can leave your answer to this week's question from Al at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio, or you can direct message it to us via Twitter at thisishellradio, or you can email it to myself or Alex at chuck at thisishell.com or alex at thisishell.com. The person with our favorite answer to this week's question wins the book we featured on yesterday's show, Nicole Ashoff's the Smartphone Society, Technology, Power, and Resistance in the New Gilded Age. And you can hear that interview right now at thisishell.com. Alex, do you have any more answers to this week's question from hell? Oh, yeah. What is the best thing you can do for the world on your smartphone? Kenneth W. says, I would like to dismantle Fumblebutt Trump's Twitter account. Mm-hmm. Sheldon B. says, retweet Russian bots for maximum divisiveness. <laughs> there you go. Aaron B. says, snake emojis. What is the best thing you can do for the world? With your smartphone, Ronaldo M says, hack into Fox News and make it a 24-7 audio stream of This Is Hell podcasts. Mike J says, never own one. That's a good one. Adam K says, use RFID spoofing to unlock motel room doors and let homeless people in for free. Oh. 
Chris F. says, order guillotines for the coming revolution. <laughs> Eric T. says, remember the ending to Childhood End by Arthur C. Clarke? Something like that. <laughs> nice. What's the best thing you can do for the world with your smartphone? Dave W. says, put it down. Braden S. says, pranking conservatives with Goatsy. <laughs> and then he writes, for the love of God, Alex, don't look up, don't look, don't look up that if you don't know what it is uh, I know what it is Chuck do you know what Goatsy is Mm-mm. okay uh, for the love of God Chuck don't look <laughs> I've seen the word before I think I think I don't know uh, he's wearing a wedding ring in it which I always find very funny uh, finally Thomas K says watch cat videos of course Alex will have more of your answers to this week's question from L following our guests leave your answer to this week's question from L at our Facebook page direct message it to us via Twitter or email it to us we told you so this is hell Since we moved to our new format at the beginning of this year, doing one-hour shows every day, Monday through Friday at 10 a.m. here at thisishell.com with our Friday show exclusively for subscribers to our Patreon podcast at patreon.com slash thisishell. And we also changed the schedule for our meet-and-greet, which is more a drink-and-think. This is Hell Office Hours at the bar downstairs from where I'm sitting right now, Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon in Chicago's West Ridge Little India neighborhood. We now have office hours on Fridays beginning at 7 p.m. because with our new schedule, I can actually hang out on Friday nights. So as we used to hold office hours on Wednesdays, Right now on the show, this is the time of the week when I remind everyone that we've moved office hours to Friday nights and we've been getting bigger crowds with different people and it's been a blast. Hanging out with listeners is always fun. The conversations are interesting. The celebrating the many different people I've had the chance to meet from all over the world. It really has been fantastic and I want to thank everyone who has dropped by over the years. You really make my week. And Carrie's has been having bands play on Friday nights now, like the Purcells a couple weeks ago, many of whose fans are also listeners of This Is Hell, so we were having these crossover audiences show up. And just as the weather was getting a little bit better, just as the crowds were starting to recover from the post-holiday slump that all bars and all events go through, just as everything is starting to click with our new Friday night office hours, the world gets the freaking plague. Monday, our engineer Theron Hummiston joined us for our first show with our new and improved board. Theron is never here during weekdays as he has another job that actually pays him something they call money. But he was here Monday because his company told him and all of their co-work- all of his co-workers to not come in for the next couple of weeks and to work out of their homes. Then, the next day, yesterday, Tuesday, we were informed that our guest scheduled for Thursday's show, tomorrow's show, Martin Hagland, author of This Life, Secular Faith and Spiritual Freedom, which was named a Best Book of the Year by The Guardian, the literary site The Millions, and the Sydney Morning Herald, a book and author we have wanted to feature on the show since it was originally published last year and is now being released in paperback. Well, we were told that we are not going to be able to conduct that interview because Martin has the flu. We don't know what the flu Martin has, and we're hoping he doesn't have the flu that we fear he has. But who knows? Shortly after I got this unfortunate news, I received a call from my girlfriend. Apparently a co-worker has not come in all week due to flu-like symptoms, and a few more walked out of work yesterday feeling as if they were catching something. Maybe all they are catching is fear and paranoia from the media. Maybe they're getting some other virus or flu. Maybe they're taking advantage of the news to get some free time off, or maybe... They've got the freaking plague. Problem is, you won't know unless you get tested. But if I went to the doctor every time I showed the symptoms of coronavirus, fever, coughing, and shortness of breath, I would have seen my family care practitioner a dozen times in the last year, especially after doing a bong hit or having sex. So you might catch you might catch it, fight it off, and never know if you actually had it or already had it or not, still potentially living in fear. And it still may strike when you unknowingly already fought it off. You don't know what's going on. Do do I have it right now? Do I not have it right now? Did I already have it? Did I go through it? Did I fight it off? You won't know unless you get tested. And now my girlfriend is staying home from work, working out of home. Meanwhile, in the alternate reality that is Fox, as New York Magazine reported on Monday night, following a day in which several Republican lawmakers self-quarantined due to coronavirus exposure, the stock market took an historic hit, and the 26th American died from COVID-19. Fox Business Network's Trish Regan began her show with a monologue damning the opposition party for politicizing the public health crisis. 
As Regan spoke of a chorus of hate being leveled at the president, the Chiron next to her read, coronavirus impeachment scam. An effective summary of the host's wandering defense of President Trump was this, Reagan saying on air, we've reached a tipping point. The hate is boiling. Many in the liberal media are using coronavirus in an attempt to demonize and destroy the president despite the virus originating halfway around the world. This is yet another attempt to impeach, and sadly it seems the left cares little for any of the destruction they leave in their wake, including losses to the stock market. This unfortunately is all just part of political casualties for them. And like with the Robert Mueller investigation, like with the Ukraine gate. They don't care who they hurt, whether it be their need to create mass hysteria, to encourage a massive sell-off in an overly anxious stock market, or to create mass hysteria in order to stop our economy dead in its tracks. Wouldn't that be great? Wouldn't that, wouldn't it be awesome if the whole coronavirus thing was a scam perpetuated by the Democratic Party all over the world in Italy, in China, just in Iran, just to embarrass and humiliate President Trump. Wouldn't it be great if the Democratic Party was that organized? Hell, if they were that organized, they could run a candidate who reflects their constituency's beliefs and can win. Can you imagine? I know I can't, especially not today, not after last night. We are now being told that in order to stop the spread of COVID-19, which I think is its stage name because coronavirus, I mean, that is not as cool as saying COVID-19. We are being asked to avoid large groups and crowds, cancel events, work from home if at all possible. And it's not possible for, say, the bartenders downstairs whose livelihood depends on large groups and crowds attending events that are not in their homes. They're also telling us to wash hands when coming and going from home and frequently when out and to, as we have all heard but cannot do, avoid touching our face, especially when outside your home. Now, we cannot control your own personal hygiene. I know I can't control my own personal hygiene, but it would be irresponsible for us to invite you all to gather together in a crowd at this time. There are listeners who fall into at-risk groups for coronavirus that join us on Fridays, and I'm, I'm very concerned for their well-being. Therefore, with great sadness in my heart, with my deepest apologies to the men and women who work at Carrie's Lounge, we will not be holding This Is Hell office hours this Friday at Carrie's until this <clears throat> whole impeachment hoax blows over. And now I'm more convinced than ever, This Is Hell. Coming up on This Is Hell, Joe Biden sucks. And more of your answers to this week's question from hell. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap tooth radio show podcast live streaming host Chuck Mertz. Producing is Alex Jerry, your eyewitness to grief this is hell. Joe Biden continued his string of primary victories last night, getting closer and closer to attaining the Democratic Party nomination for president of the United States. But what kind of president would we have in a President Biden if he did win? And how would the far right react? And what happens if the candidate we were told was the only one who can win loses? Here to help us better understand Joe Biden, staff writer for Jacobin Magazine and 2019-2020 Leonard C. Goodman Institute for Investigative Reporting Fellow at Indies Times, Bronco Marchetich is author of the new book, Yesterday's Man, The Case Against Joe Biden. You write, simply removing Donald Trump from power won't do what many liberals hope it will. Trump and far-right populists like him are just one byproduct of the same normal that the many now pine for, a normal that often felt like anything but for a growing number of people. What do liberals hope removing Trump would do? What do they hope would change? Because all I ever hear is these oppositional politics to Trump or just anti-Trump, but I never hear anything about what else does that mean. Different groups have, have several different conceptions of what they think uh, removing Trump from power is going to be. I think there's uh, certainly a, a certain section of liberal people who think they're getting rid of Trump um, and, you know, restoring, uh, I guess, the Obama era, um, which may well be uh, a big part of why the, the electorate is, is shifting to Biden um, in this election, that it will things back to normal. Um, that that it'll take us to these pre-Trump days when people didn't have to to constantly be thinking about the news or, or worrying about things. Um, I, I think that's one element of it. I think there are also people who just figure, you know, any Democrat is going to be better than Trump, and will uh, at the very least 
end some of these um, terrible things that Trump has done, whether the the stuff at the border or um, you know some of this uh, the 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 spending cuts um, to social programs and and that kind of thing. Um, I mean, the problem with that is that the as I say. The, the normal of the pre-Trump era was really not very normal at all for a lot of people. Uh, a lot of people were struggling with their medical bills, with the, uh, you know, with death collectors uh, knocking on their doors, with uh, members of their family being um, sent to war and coming back in pieces or not at all. Um, so, and, and that kind of anger uh, and disengagement um, that was a product of, of, of policies and 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 this kind of a constant being down um was really the kind of thing that led to trump and i mean even if trump loses this election uh which you know if it's joe biden i i don't believe he will um even if he does lose it uh there remains a distinct possibility that if you only just restore the uh obama era normalcy that you end up with something even worse uh than trump that follows that you write that to return the United States to an, any version of normalcy that won't just lead the country straight back to another Trump. The eventual Democratic nominee will have to do two things. They'll have to beat Donald Trump at the ballot box, thus removing him from the White House. And they'll need to midwife a fundamental break from the political status quo, removing or mending the conditions that led to his rise in the first place. So I want to talk about those conditions because you said that if Biden does get elected, we might get something worse than Trump in 2024. In your in your assessment, what were the conditions that led led to the rise of Trump, and did Joe Biden in any way contribute to those conditions? Oh, yeah, Biden and a whole generation of Democrats, the generation that really has um, has swung their support behind Biden in the last couple of weeks uh, to, to try and block uh, Sanders' nomination. I mean, why did Trump win? Uh, one of the reasons is that he did manage to poach uh, people who might have voted Democratic to vote for him. He convinced them that he was a fighter for the American worker, um, that he would protect American jobs, that he would fight for forgotten Americans and that kind of thing. Of course, uh, you know, he was completely disingenuous about that, but I think some people did listen to what he said. And some people have since, you know, realized that he was a con artist who was lying to them. Um, but there's some people who are very loyal to him. Um, other people, uh, simply stayed home. Um, Voter participation in 2016, uh, particularly among African Americans, had had dropped for the first time in 20 years, um, to to a, a new low, uh, or at least a 20-year low. Uh, these are voters who should have been Democratic voters, um, reflexive Democratic voters, and yet they felt that, given the options that were put before them, uh, there was not really that much point in in going out and voting again. And you have to remember that. Okay, let's look at the the '90s, for example. Biden uh, pushed and voted for the uh, the welfare reform uh, that that Bill Clinton signed. He uh, pushed and, and voted for NAFTA. He uh, pushed and voted for the Iraq War. Um, all of these things have had long term uh, effects on the American electorate and have had a a disillusioning effect, I think, on a lot of people in the United States um, with, with Democratic voters to see their own party and, and presidents uh, systematically dismantling the proudest legacies of their party, the you know the, the legacies of the New Deal and the Great Society, um, as Biden has tried to do through cutting Social Security and Medicare, which, which successive Democratic presidents have tried to do. I think that has made people go, well, you know, there really isn't really an option. There's no point who you vote for, because whether it's Democrat or Republican, they're going to come for um, these programs that we rely on to live. And then for other people, I mean, the the Iraq war and the trade stuff, whether you're a Democratic voter or not, um, that stuff has, we, we now know, has had a uh, really damaging effect uh, on, on society. You know, the, the, the job losses, the industrialization that we've seen across parts of the US as a result of, of these trade deals and, and job offshoring, but also the um, the carnage that, that wars like the Iraq war and the wars in Afghanistan have um, have had on um, uh, on communities across the United States, as I was saying. Um, and, you know, that allowed someone like Trump to come in, who, again, he was completely full of it. But he did say that he was going to uh, run a diff as a different kind of Republican. He was going to protect Medicare and Social Security. He was going to not take the United States into a new uh, set of wars. 
um, that he would bring back jobs and fight these trade deals. And so he was actually able to run to the left of the centrist establishment Democrat. And, you know, now the party uh, disastrously looks like it's on the way to nominating a candidate who is exactly the same um, as the one that lost in 2016, but worse. So do you think Donald Trump is going to lose any of those voters who did vote for him because he rejected foreign wars, because he attacked the free trade deals, because he criticized the, as you point out, the political corruption endemic to the system, because he had the interests supposedly of the working, uh, suffering working class at heart? Do you think he's going to lose any of those uh, voters that he misled? Or was that such a small portion of the people who voted for Trump? It really won't make any difference in 2020. I mean, I think he probably will lose some some people already um, since uh, 2016. There have been people who have who have uh, said in interviews that you know I voted for Trump, thinking that he was going to uh, uh, do something different um, from from what the status quo has been, and then they were bitterly disappointed and they said, well, you know, I'm completely disillusioned by this. Um, so he will lose some people, but we have to remember that that Trump's core voting base. Is, has always been the Republican base. I mean, if you look at his uh, approval ratings among Republicans right now, it's uh, is it 89 or 90 percent? I mean, it's it's sky high. It's been basically the same sky high level um, uh, since he got into office. Um, and those voters, uh, as long as he can energize his own base, and I think uh, there's not really that much risk. Of him doing so, um, I think Republican the Republican Party has always been a lot more sort of, um, or at least the Republican electorate is a lot more ideologically uh, clear and committed than the Democratic one. Um, I think he'll probably be fine. And I mean, all he needs to do is to suppress um, Democratic turnout really to win. He doesn't even have to win over that many Democratic voters. He really just has to suppress that Democratic turnout. Um, and I think that's going to be pretty easy to do once once people, um, you know, have to see Joe Biden in public for longer than 15 minutes at a time or um, really just get to know his, his entire history and record, which has been dutifully, um, uh, uh, you know, erased or, or simply not talked about by a lot of the media this uh, this campaign cycle. You write how whoever the Democratic Party nominee is, they need to challenge the status quo or else down the line we'll have something that is more far right, something that might be worse than Donald Trump. And you write that Biden's career has straddled the United States uneasy transition from the politics of the New Deal to its takeover by the radical right, starting in the 1930s after decades marked by class conflict, stark inequality, and alarming concentrations of wealth and power. President Franklin Delano Roosevelt's four terms helped transform the United States from a country whose business was business, as one Republican predecessor had famously put it, to one focused on securing hard-fought social, economic, and political rights for its working people. However, imperfectly and even unjustly, it carried out that task. So what explains Biden's lack of an embrace of the more New Deal-like programs that Bernie Sanders supports. Why doesn't Biden want to go back to the New Deal to make America great again, Bronco? <laughs> well, funnily enough, he started out as kind of a, a slightly reluctant, but but nonetheless a New Deal liberal uh, in the 1970s when he when he ran for office in 1972. Um, and you know, there's the, you know we can ask about how. Uh, genuine this was, how much of this was just sort of posturing for time. But in 1972, when he ran, uh, and, he, and he ended up being a very um, uh, uh, well-established, popular, well-liked Republican incumbent, um, he ran on a platform that would not really sound that similar to, to what um, what Bernie Sanders is running on now. You know, he attacked the, the, the parties for being controlled by big money, and he... Um, Complained about millionaires uh, not paying taxes and billion-dollar corporations, um, you know, who, who minimize the tax burdens. He wanted a consumer protection agency set up. He wanted uh, price controls and interest rate uh, controls. Uh, he called for social security uh, benefits to be expanded, um, which is which is uh, very unique for his career. Um, so he ran a very different campaign um, in 1972 that was much more aligned with the, the prevailing political order of the day, which was the tail end of that New Deal liberalism that Roosevelt had put into motion. Um, but by 1978, when he has to run for re-election for the first time, 
that's the same year as the Taxpayers Rebellion uh, in California that, that starts there and kind of uh, uh, ignites across the United States um, this big kind of conservative um, rejection of, of taxes and, and the desire to, to, to lower taxes and to lower the tax burden. Uh, you also have several different, um, uh, uh, I guess, counter-reactions to, to the um, success of the civil rights movement um, and to some of the, the you know, the, the rise, the genuine rise in crime and, and drug use during the 1960s. And these same sort of voters um, increasingly start getting swayed by these very tough on crime, tough on drug policies. And so by 1978, when Biden's running for re-election, all this is happening, um, he decides that rather than run the populist campaign, the economically populist campaign he had run in 72, he's going to run a much more conservative campaign, claim that he's a fiscal conservative, call for a tax cut, um, call for, for cutting back the government, all this kind of stuff. And he wins. Um, and that leads neatly into the Reagan era when Ronald Reagan, who, um, you know, I'm not sure what the, the demographic of people that, that listens to your show is, but, you know, Ronald Reagan for his time was considered uh, the Donald Trump of, of his era. Um, very much the same sort of very extreme uh, right-wing Republican who was uh, uh, had a terrible, terrible stance on, on race and, and gender issues and everything. He was endorsed by the Klan, um, said a lot of crazy things. Um, and Reagan wins in two landslides, absolutely destroys uh, the Democratic contenders. And Biden um, and a host of other Democrats at the time, they look at that and they say, well, clearly we have to we have to switch. We can't be the uh, the liberal party that we have been for the past few decades. We have to become more conservative. And so Biden essentially uh, presides over this period where the Democratic Party shifts uh, markedly to the right and basically adopts a lot of Republican uh, uh, elements of their platform. And that's the same playbook that Every Democrat has really taken, um, it, you know, since since about the 1980s, since the Reagan era. Uh, it's certainly the tack that, that Clinton took in 2016, and of course, um, we saw what happened to her when when she had to run against not a typical Republican, but rather one who could uh, strategically, um, you know, pretend to be, uh, you know, to her left on certain issues. You're right. Just as Roosevelt's election had heralded a sharp break from what came before, Ronald Reagan's in 1980 did the same, only in the opposite direction. While Roosevelt's New Deal order had used state power to improve people's lives, Reagan's presidency helped usher in a neoliberal order that claimed to pursue the same goal with the opposite platform, lower taxes, less government interference in the market and people's lives, and overall pro-business policies that... The claim went would create prosperity that filtered down to everyone else. Now, that's the use of state power to improve people's lives. In your estimation, what did a better job of improving people's lives? After all, the New Deal was abandoned when there was staggering unemployment, skyrocket inflation. They came up with a new term, stagflation, which combines high unemployment and inflation with stagnant demand. And, uh, you know, we're better off than that today, 40 years later than we were in 1973, 1974, after the first New Deal. Or are we better off considering the high cost of and inaccessibility of what were low-cost public goods like education and healthcare, with wages not matching production and remaining stagnant for over three decades. And while unemployment has become far more precarious, or unemployment has become far more precarious with far fewer uh, benefits. So did both the New Deal and neoliberalism both suck at improving people's lives. No, not at all. Neoliberalism has been terrible, um, unless you you you, know, you enjoy um, buying consumer goods that, that you're going to throw away in a, a few days or weeks' time. But in terms of actually dealing with the the material challenges of people's lives, I mean, there's no doubt that that there was uh, a better time to be alive um, from uh, you know during the New Deal era. I mean, this is what even conservatives uh, look back on today as the kind of golden age of capitalism. Uh, when there were jobs, when there was an actual, or there was more of a safety net um, to to protect people. When there were strong unions, um, much much stronger labor laws. Obviously, in terms of um, uh, you know social progress, uh, a lot to be desired. Um, you know the the civil rights movement wouldn't really secure a lot of victories for people until the 1960s, of course. And and you know the, we had the the women's movement and and the liberation of, of other communities like the LGBTQ community. So those things have gotten better for sure. Um, but if we're looking at the just the purely the 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 kind of bread and butter issues, people's pocketbooks, um, that that has 
really uh, really changed. And there's no reason those two things couldn't go together. Um, in fact, they they sort of did. Um, and, but it's really uh, you know even even some of these gains that we made on, on civil rights and everything that they are in the era of neoliberalism um, being rolled back. And so you know whereas uh, as I say, you have this kind of flawed uh, welfare state during the New Deal that that certainly left a lot to be desired and was uh, vastly unfinished, um, but but was making progress on actually a whole host of things, whether securing civil rights for people um, and securing a decent standard of living for people. And in neoliberalism, we were, we were promised the, the 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 decent standard of living part. Um, or at least, uh, well, we were, we were told that that would happen basically through a private sector. Um, and we were told that, you know, well, neoliberalism, because it's less government, that means that, um, you know, you're also going to have more freedom. You won't have the government bearing down on you and telling you what to do and, and, and putting a gun to your head and all this stuff. And we're seeing now that that's uh, completely the opposite. I mean, neoliberalism is failing to secure the standard of living. I mean, you just look at the healthcare situation in the, in the United States. Um, and, and I mean, it, it's so out of control now, you can't argue that really it would have been better to, to the, the situation as it is now is better than uh, how it was during the, uh, the 50s, 60s, 70s. Um, but even beyond that, I mean, neoliberalism is now, um, both the United States and, and really across the world, turning into an increasingly uh, authoritarian, uh, repressive direction. Um, and we see that with Trump um, and, and, to be honest, with Obama in the United States. As um, both of these uh, presidents have claimed really unprecedented powers and, and uh, put uh, the security state of the United States towards the uh, goal of basically putting down um, social movements or really spying on them. And we're seeing it you know, really ramping up in places like Brazil, where you have uh, Jair Bolsonaro, who is, a, um, again, a, a neoliberal authoritarian in the style of uh, Pinochet. Um, and so, uh, yeah, I mean, the, the, the era that Reagan's victories really um, set off and that people like Joe Biden have pushed the Democratic Party uh, towards um, in, in that direction, um, I would say have in every single way left us uh, worse off now uh, than, than, you know, at the worst period of uh, the New Deal consensus. Just because I want to get past this really dumb conventional wisdom that I keep hearing. Uh, it, the, the wisdom is that we couldn't afford the New Deal. It wasn't sustainable. And the New Deal gave us stagflation, gave us inflation, gave us the high unemployment of the 1970s. And look what neoliberalism is giving us. Everything's perfect because the stock market is at record highs and unemployment <laughs> is at record lows. What's wrong with that framing of the issue in blaming the 1970s on the New Deal and seeing as the only successes that you need to have with an economy, a high Dow Jones and low unemployment? Well, I mean, the, the 1970s, when people talk about stagflation and the New Deal kind of uh, falling apart, that was um, that was a result of some very specific crises to that era. Obviously, you had the the oil shocks, um, you know, the, the oil embargo in the Middle East, um, which which caused chaos. But you also had the Vietnam War, which was really, um, I mean, that was a huge expense. Um, that was, you know, not really, as always, you never have to, to say how you're going to pay for wars. You only have to talk about how you're going to pay for, for social programs. So this idea that there was a new deal that caused this this kind of stuff is, is you know, nonsense. I mean, uh, the... the American welfare state was totally sustainable up until then, up until the decade that these crises had. So, you know, um, I mean, one can make the argument that that perhaps uh, what should have been uh, taken more into consideration it was was shifting the tax burden further from middle class families as these crises uh, were heading um, and and putting it more on the wealthy. But by that point, I mean. Um, things were starting to swing into a neoliberal direction, and and that was the problem was that the class politics in the United States had really been killed off uh, after the war. One of the ironies um, of of this, uh, you know, this liberal period um, was that that um, it really killed off the 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 sort of, uh, or at least it said that that making any class appeals was you know un-American, terrible, and everything. Um, so perhaps if if it had kept going in that direction. Uh, these these issues and this this popular anger against taxes and the like 
may have gone in a different direction. I, I kind of just very briefly in the book uh, talk about that, that that really is how Bernie Sanders, who's of course now running against Joe Biden, um, won power in Billington in the 80s, uh, you know, at a time when Vermont was still a Republican state and controlled by this very conservative Democratic establishment. He ran uh, a left-wing anti-tax campaign that mirrored the, the anti-tax campaign uh, of Reagan. Um, uh, but instead of saying, well, we're going to just cut government to the bone at the same time as we cut your taxes, Sanders was saying, let's cut regressive taxes like the property tax, um, which fall mostly on, on um, people, on ordinary homeowners, and let's shift it to businesses and the rich. So, you know, I mean, if that had been a direction that the um, that the that the party, that the Democratic Party, and and maybe U.S. politics had gone in, perhaps um, things would have been differently. But uh, yeah, I mean, uh, we're in the future we are now, and we can't really change that at this point. We're in the future we are now. I like that. We are speaking with Bronco Marchetich. He is author of the new book, Yesterday's Men: The Case Against Joe Biden. He's co-host of the One of 200 podcast, which you can find on Twitter at One of 200 Podcast. And you can follow Bronco on Twitter at B Marchetich. In your opinion, is Joe Biden a better or worse candidate for president in 2020 than Hillary was in 2016? And why or why not? Worse. Uh, absolutely worse. Uh, I mean, we look at what, what sung Hillary Clinton's campaign. Um, one was the... Uh, the, the kind of um, air of corruption among her and her family. Uh, one was her stance on criminal or a past stance on criminal justice issues. Um, we might also point to her, um, her record in trade. We would point to her vote for the Iraq war and her various kind of hawkish stances in foreign intervention for the United States. Um, and by the way, I'll just add that, that so far, no Democratic candidate who voted for the Iraq war has um, has ever won an election against a Republican. So, yeah, it's food for thought there. Um, so, I mean, we could probably point to a few different things, but, but okay, let's, let's leave it there. So let's look at Joe Biden's record. Biden didn't just vote for the Iraq War. He backed it fully. He was one of the leading architects of the Iraq War on the Democratic side. He was the chair of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, and he has many, many, many uh, clips and, and quotes over the months in 2002 and 2003, where he's supporting the war to the hilt before he, you know, looked at the political winds and, and shifted. Um, on criminal justice, I mean, Clinton's video talking about super predators became this huge issue in 2016 that kind of helped to depress um, enthusiasm for her among Democratic voters. Well, Biden, Biden only has clips like that in his history, which, which are already out there, and Trump will definitely put into ads. But he was the architect of um, of the mass carceral state that exists in the United States. He, he pushed the crime bills in the 1980s that eliminated parole and set up the powder crack cocaine uh, sentencing disparity and um, put more money into, into policing and, and put more money into the militarization of police and, uh, and so on and so forth. Um, if we look at the, the, the charges of corruption, um, you know, I mean, Biden, Biden, I wouldn't say is on the scale of Clinton, but literally the week that Biden got these wins in, in uh, Michigan and, and everywhere else, uh, you know, just, just yesterday on Tuesday, um, there was a story in Politico that, that the FBI has raided um, a company that is linked to his brother. Um, and this is just one of many stories involving Joe Biden's brother and, of course, his son, Hunter. Um, which show that his family has been making money off him um, and cashing in on him, basically from the beginning of his of his political career to now. Uh, um, and you know, I mean, I don't know that much about what's going to happen with this particular this, this story, this raid that I was talking about, but um, you can bet that's going to be brought up in the general election and will be relentlessly uh, talked about. Beyond that, I mean, Hillary Clinton. Um, whatever you want to say about her, uh, and, and the, the God knows I have many criticisms of both her and the, the woeful campaign she ran in 2016. Um, but she is a much stronger candidate than, than Joe Biden. I, I know this is for some reason. Uh, well, I know, I know, not, not for some reason. It's very clear what the reason is. I know that it's it's now uh, considered gauche to to bring this up in the media. To to you know, it's uh, apparently a, a coordinated disinformation campaign to just bring up what is obvious to anyone who sees Biden speaking for longer than 10 minutes at a time. 
Joe Biden is is having real difficulties um, formulating thoughts, uh, speaking coherently. Uh, I'm sorry this upsets people, but um, however you feel about it being brought up in the Democratic primary, you can bet the voters are going to see this when they have to see him debate Trump, um, you know, which will happen at least three times um, in the general election. Uh, Hillary Clinton, at least, was a pretty good debater. Uh, she could hold her own against Trump. Um, uh, the idea that, that she lost him because he had some sort of uh, powerful masculine presence that, that overrode her, 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 feminist, her, her feminine kind of style or something, which I've heard a lot of liberals say, is complete nonsense. Hillary Clinton held her own against Donald Trump in those debates, um, despite this bullying, hectoring style he took. And a lot of people are now putting faith in Biden because they think, well, he's a man. He's going to be able to stand up to, to Trump in this masculine way. And I think Biden's really just going to embarrass himself. We've already, we've already seen the kind of thing he's going to do um, because he's previewed it on the campaign trail, you know, challenge Trump to push-ups and an IQ test and, you know, start calling him fat, all this kind of stuff. Um, it, it's uh, I think it will make him actually look <laughs> – more unhinged uh, than Trump. He might actually make Trump look like the more reasonable, coherent one. Um, I mean, you know, we could go on and on and on, but but for all these reasons and more, um, Biden is a much weaker candidate. I Actually, I will say one more, and this is the, the and then and I'll leave it here. Uh, Hillary Clinton, again, for whatever criticisms you have of her as a candidate, had people who were passionate about her, had voters who would would die for her, would go to the ends of the earth for her because they, they wanted to get her in there. And some people because they wanted the, the kind of symbolic victory of having a um a woman win win the uh the presidency, which which you know totally understandable. Joe Biden has none of that. Joe Biden does not have enthusiastic supporters. He he does not have some rabid fan base that's desperate. You know, he doesn't have Biden heads who have been following his career for decades. And he has there's no symbolic victory that comes with putting another 70 year old uh you know uh, a white catholic guy in the white house um i guess maybe maybe he's catholic maybe that's the one thing but i'm not sure if that's gonna be that that part in the symbolic victory jfk already did that um so uh i think he's gonna have a way less enthusiasm um uh, come the election day than than clinton did when she ran against trump and of course clinton lost um so uh yeah it doesn't doesn't bode well so Joe Biden is not that great of a debater, and Bernie Sanders does a better job. However, you want to rate Sanders' uh, debating skills. It's at least better than Joe Biden's. Sanders kept saying yesterday uh, during the campaign and then after uh, the primary totals were announced that he's just looking forward to the Sunday debate in mm-hmm. Phoenix. How much of an impact do you think that that debate can have on this election? Isn't it already far too late in the primaries for that to have any real impact on what voters think? We'll see. Uh, I mean, if you'd asked me two weeks ago, uh, hilariously, um, right before my book uh, came out, um, whether uh, Joe Biden was going to win the nomination, I would have said, of course not. Um, He's finished. The guy got a drubbing in the first three states uh, among every every group that he needs to win in November. Um, but then suddenly his cam- campaign just came back. Um, it came roaring back. And, and now the assumptions of a few weeks ago have been completely uh, flipped in their head. Um, so uh, a lot can change. I don't know if it will, but a lot can change. I mean, we have to remember that Joe Biden has gone through uh, the entirety of 2019 and, and really 2020 doing as few unscripted media appearances as possible. This is a well-reported aspect of his campaign. Uh, people in his campaign know that he ha- is having difficulties uh, in this campaign, and they want to make sure that he's shielded from um, public view as much as possible so that's not revealed. Um, he, it's come out a little bit in the debates, but you know, in the debates, he's been helped by the fact that there's always been, you know, six to 10 people on stage and he has to speak, uh, for a relatively short amount of time. He, he's had to speak for about 10, 10 to 15 minutes at most per debate, um, because of the sheer number of people. And even when he has spoken, his answers have been disjointed, incoherent, rambling, um, sometimes nonsensical and completely, uh, untrue. Uh, he's, he's lied several times in debates about all manner of things. Um, so it's going to be tough for him to 
sit there for 40 to 60 minutes and having to to answer questions uh you know on the fly without without being interrupted without having to just sort of spit out sound bites but actually having to to um uh, respond to 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 real questions and respond to to sanders responses whether that will make a difference again remains to be seen um debates can sometimes make a difference we saw with um elizabeth warren going after mike bloomberg how that um really slashed into his favorability rating. Um, it may well be that people will watch this debate and, um, you know, if Biden really embarrasses himself, uh, that they'll go, wait a minute, do we really want to put this guy up against Trump uh, in November? But again, it's going to depend on, on how good a performance San, uh, uh, Biden pulls out, but also how good a performance Sanders pulls out because he's going to have to hit him hard. You know, that was, I think, uh, a big strategic mistake of his campaign was that they, they by the... Uh, but in, you know, in the last month or two, they really let Biden off the hook. They turned their attention onto Mike Bloomberg um, and and uh, assumed that Biden was finished. And and obviously that wasn't the case. You write that Biden was one of the chief architects of a racist system of mass incarceration and showed a clear long willingness to sacrifice African-American communities for political survival, as you were mentioning earlier. So to you, what explains Biden's success in South Carolina? I saw an article where uh, the author was suggesting the very frightening idea that the only reason that African-Americans were voting for Joe Biden in South Carolina was because they feared four more years of racial animus that is perpetuated by the president of the United States, by President Trump. And so they were only doing this out of a kind of a survival mechanism in order to protect themselves from any more racism. So to you, what explains Biden's success in South Carolina? Uh, there's a few things. Uh, I would say it's nothing to do with his policy positions or ideas. Uh, if you look at exit polling, uh, not just in South Carolina, but everywhere, really, um, for one, Medicare for all, uh, which is, of course, Sanders uh, main policy and also the one that Biden has spent the entirety of, of this in last year um, trashing and, and saying would be a terrible idea. Um, is wildly popular among Democratic voters who who vote in these primaries. Um, you know, South Carolina voters, a majority of Biden's voters in South Carolina, according to CNN, want a quote complete overhaul of the United uh, of the U.S. economic system. Um, there, there's it's it's patently clear that if you look at all this exit polling, people are not voting based on policy. Um, I think they're voting based on who's going to be Trump in November. Um, and what have they been told uh, since 2019, particularly on networks like, like MSNBC, which um, – and I, I did a study into this um, uh, late last year. Uh, MSNBC very rarely covers the actual policy um, and because they're, they're, um, of the candidates and because their coverage is so centralized around Trump um, and beating Trump um, and polling – uh, the the narrative that voters have been fed, not just on on MSNBC but other other networks too, um, for for more than a year, is that you need someone electable, quote unquote electable, to be Trump, and the person who's most electable is Biden, and Sanders isn't because he's a socialist and that'll scare people away. Um, even though Sanders consistently does very well uh, in head-to-head polling with Trump and has since 2016. Um, I mean, even in uh, uh, just the other day, uh, in these times, uh, one of the magazines I work for wrote a uh, did, did a, another study of media coverage after the uh, after the wins of Biden super uh, in South Carolina. I'm sorry, and after the win of Sanders in Nevada. So both big blowout wins um, that that sort of fed into these into their respective electability arguments. When Sanders won, in the 24 hours after that, CNN. Uh, ran mostly negative stories about him, three times more uh, negative stories than they did about Biden after a South Carolina win. Um, and the stories are about his either, you know, how his victory was helping the Russians, or he was unelectable and would 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 uh, sink the Democrats come uh, come the general election. Uh, they actually invited Biden on uh, to attack Sanders uh, after Nevada, but did not att- uh, invite Sanders himself after his big win. Uh, whereas after South Carolina, they invited Biden on to talk about his win, but not Sanders. Um, and even though Biden got negative coverage uh, uh, in a 24-hour span, he also – the negative coverage is more about, well, how can he come back from this and, and you know basically stop Sanders? Um, so I think the media has been a big part of it. I think uh, you know we forget that the Democratic electorate is not the Republican electorate. Democrats are far more trusting of the media and institutions like it uh, than the Republican electorate. 
And so they're a lot more willing to swallow uh, these these things that they're being fed uh, by the media. Um, there's also a lot more trust of elites. Clearly, uh, Jim Clyburn's endorsement was huge, and then the the string of endorsements that followed that. Um, you know, Buttigieg, Klobuchar, Harry Reid, and, and other people that kind of gave Biden this momentum going into into Super Tuesday. And since then, as he's been racking up more endorsements. Um, I think also we have to remember that that Biden was, after all, vice president to uh, to probably the most popular Democratic president uh, that who is alive today, um, uh, who also happens to be the the, the country's first African American president. Um, I think most people don't know that much about Biden's record at all. They don't know the fact that he he lied about civil rights move, uh, his his civil rights activism that didn't exist. That he, you know, that he lied about this Nelson Mandela meeting that never took place. That he uh, was involved in the um, in, in erecting mass incarceration and then you know getting rid of welfare and all this kind of stuff. They don't know that stuff. They see him as the as the kind of you know fun, uh, jolly uh, psychic to Obama. Um, and, and they see him as a known quantity, you know, they know who he is, um, or at least they, they have heard his name and they've seen him for eight years. Um, and at the end of the day, a lot of voters, particularly African-American voters in the South, um, are, are very pragmatic voters. Um, they, they have had long experiences, uh, you know, having, having little choice in elections and having to vote for the, the flawed lesser evil um, and I think that's what's happening now. They they probably know that you know again that, that Sanders is better on a whole heap of issues that they care about, but because they believe that Biden is more electable because they've been told relentlessly that he is, um, they have you know made this uh, Sophie's choice and, and gone with Biden. How primed is a Biden pre- presidency for? retaliatory impeachment, because you write that during the time uh, Joe Biden was vice president, when his brother's lack of real estate experience had been no obstacle for him to wind up the executive vice president of a mid-sized construction firm that received a one and a half billion dollar contract for building homes in Iraq. Likewise, in 2014, Hunter Biden was plopped onto the board of Burisma, one of Ukraine's biggest private gas producers, making as much as over $80,000 a month, just as the company embarked on a major lobbying campaign in the United States, and just as his father pushed its government toward a more aggressive anti-corruption stance. And you point out that the way in which the Trump administration tries to play that Hunter Biden story is completely false and fake and all that. But nonetheless, how primed is a Biden presidency for retaliatory impeachment? I don't know. I mean, uh, I will say this. If the impeachment process uh, that the Democrats ran against Trump um, is any indication, they're very ill-prepared. You know, the, the impeachment thing was the Democrats trying to rally around Biden and protect the guy that they um, figured at the time was was going to end up facing off against Trump, and they may well be right. Um, and it was an attempt, you know, the defense they, they launched was, well, Trump is the corrupt one, and that Biden's, uh, or at least the corruption of Biden's son, uh, you know, it was perfectly legal, so it's all okay. An incredibly weak defense, and, and the impeachment itself completely backfired on Democrats. Um, Trump's approval rating went up after impeachment. Um, it did the exact opposite of what it was meant to do. Uh so, you know, the Democrats, if, if you if you take their past strategic genius as an indication of how things might go under impeachment by the Republicans, I, I doubt it's going to go particularly well. Um, you know, whatever the whatever the impeachment issue is and, you know, whether it's Ukraine or whether it's something else, uh, we will see. But, uh, yeah, there's no doubt that the Republicans are, uh, are going to, especially after what they, I, I think, correctly see as, as a very partisan and, and uh, trumped up uh, effort under Trump to, to get rid of a Republican president. You know, um, I, you know, we don't have to get into it, but the Russiagate thing, the Mueller report was devastating to the Democrat claims for, for two years that Trump was this Russian asset and so on and so forth. I think they're absolutely going to, whether, whether there's something there, whether, whether it's completely spurious, they are going to... Uh, launch an impeachment against Biden. Um, you know, we've learned under Obama that even, and and Clinton, frankly, that even centrist presidents who bend over backwards to pass Republican measures uh, will be ruthlessly uh, attacked and and uh, and destroyed by the Republicans in Congress. Um, and so even though Biden will undoubtedly, I think, uh, 
try and work with Mitch McConnell to cut uh, Medicare and Social Security, and and they may well succeed at that. We'll see. Um, I think they'll they're still going to go uh, uh, go at him um, and and try and destroy him that way. Within the right, uh, it, with the Trump election victory back in 2016, we see the unpopularity of the status quo. When you look at polls saying that Bernie Sanders is the most popular politician in the United States, that reveals the unpopularity of the status quo. When we look at poll numbers within the uh, Democratic primaries, we can see the unpopularity of the status quo, whether it's from the right or the left. How sustainable is the status quo when both the right and the left find it to be so unlikable and unpopular? I mean, it's tough because I think the Democratic primary is for someone like Sanders in some ways um, harder to win than the general election because um, I mean part of it is the the swing towards a more affluent base for the Democratic Party which is um, which is making it tough um, to win over some of these to, to, to win through a kind of explicitly working class focused strategy that, that Sanders is, is taking um, but also um, because the Democrats are so obsessed with simply simply removing Trump from power and, and restoring you know what was a, a comparatively better status quo under Obama um, there there isn't the I, I think among democratic officials and democratic elites and everything, there isn't the same feeling of, of uh, uh, or at least the same sense that people are struggling as I think there is in the rest of the country. We have to remember that partisan affiliation is now, um, I think maybe it's historic low, uh, certainly in, in, the, in the last hundred or so years, um, the number of people who don't identify uh, as either Democrat or Republican is, is um now the highest affiliation uh, in the country. And then, of course, you have non-voters as well. So it's a lot of people who don't associate with either party. Um, and I think do feel like the status quo uh, is not working for them, uh, that it hasn't been working for them for a long time. Um, and putting Biden in, I mean, let's say he, he wins the presidency. I mean, Biden said that he's not going <laughs> to, well, Biden, Biden for one has said, he, t- he told uh, a group of wealthy donors in 2019 that, that, Nothing will fundamentally change. Um, so he wants to just keep everything going. He wants, you know, presumably the U.S. will continue to deal with um, the the migrant crisis that's bordered by just sort of um, increasing its cruelty towards migrants. Presumably, it'll continue to deal with climate change by simply exporting more oil from the United States, increasing drilling, and not really doing anything to challenge uh, this industry that is just sending us all to uh, an early grave. Um, presumably, he's not going to do anything about healthcare. I mean, Biden in his entire career has um, uh, not really had any interest in, in making uh, significant, meaningful reforms to the healthcare system in, in the United States. And um, it, you know, if he doesn't want to change anything, then probably the Obamacare will continue to sputter and and uh, you know implode uh, before our eyes. Insurance will get more expensive, people will get more and more screwed by insurance companies and pharmaceuticals. Um, I I don't think that that uh, the, the rising level of anger that that's going to produce is going to be able to uh, survive longer than you know a four year democratic term. And then what happens after that? I mean, if you if you do as I hint at in the book, if you get a a different Republican um, or just a different far right populist of whatever party. Uh, affiliation, who looks at Trump's game plan but says, you know, well, I, you know, I can do that while also not being an erratic, incoherent, uh, you know, rapist and racist, um, and and who sort of figures out a way to uh, triangulate on some of these issues, you know, as I said, maybe runs on protecting Medicare and Social Security and expanding it as Sanders has while combining it with a, uh, you know, a, a wider pro-business agenda and a sort of more virulently racist uh, program, well, that, that is really scary. Um, you know, and I think the only, only way to combat that is not through more centrist liberalism um, that just seeks to accommodate these things, but with a, a fundamentally different vision, the kind of vision that Sanders is supporting than that. If Democratic voters weren't constantly being told that that this is a a killer in, in the general election might actually do pretty well among a broad swath uh, of the populace. And that brings us to our last question. We have been speaking with Bronco Mar- 
Chaitish. He is the author of the new book, Yesterday's Man, The Case Against Joe Biden. Bronco is co-host of the One of 200 podcast, which you can find on Twitter at One of 200 Podcast. You can follow Bronco on Twitter at B. Marchetich. You can, our, our final uh, question with each and every one of our guests, Bronco, is the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer, our audience is going to hate your response. And you touched on this <laughs> a little bit in your last answer. Are we better off in the long run with Trump winning in 2020 or Biden winning in 2020? I mean, it's it's hard to say because there's so many variables. I mean, we we don't know exactly how a Biden uh, uh, term would unfold. We also don't know how a second Trump term would unfold. Um, we don't know what kind of crises are going to hit. Uh, obviously, there's coronavirus now, um, uh, and that's that's having a, a you know a huge effect, I think, on on politics across the globe. Um, but we're going to start seeing uh, the cascading effects of the climate crisis really start hitting in the next few years, unless it's arrested. And, you know, again, both Biden and Trump have made clear that they're not really going to do all that much to to stave off the climate crisis. Um, so the, the, the other question is, you know, how, uh, what kind of crises are we going to see? How are these tipping points that we're, we're you know, just hurtling towards um, how are they going to change things? What will they they cause, and what kind of shocks and pressures are they going to um, have on on politics in the United States? So, you know, I, again, I don't want to speculate, um, but I will say, I think that a Biden term would, you know, Trump's Trump's goal is simply to set fire to everything, including the environment and and the climate, um, and to actually accelerate these things. Um, and you could say, um, you know, to some extent that, that perhaps uh, Trump's term has been in some way clarifying for all its atrocities and, and cruelties. Um, it has kind of pushed people to take more radical stances because of the looming threat of, of this kind of um, proto-fascist uh, 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 viewpoint that he, or, or yeah, viewpoint that he represents. Um, but at the same time, it's also, I think, put a lot of people into panic um, and and been in some ways harmful uh, to some arguments that the left has made uh, because everything has been boiled down to Trump, 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 Trump is bad, and uh, Trump is bad because of Russia, and and, and Trump won because of Russia, um, and it's sort of obscured some of these larger structural critiques. Um, so you know, I think I, t I think Trump has been good and bad, um, but at the same time, you know. Uh, uh, well, you know, no, he's he's been all bad. Let me let me make clear. But you know, uh, his, his presence has led to some led to some you know silver linings, I guess, if we're going to put a put a um, some very very meager silver linings if we're going to put a, a label to it. But um, Biden Biden would at least potentially buy the kind of the U.S. left and the and the wider progressive movement in, in the United States more time to organize. I mean, if if Sanders loses, I think. Um, the idea of, of trying to uh, enact change from the top down um, through the presidency is is there's not enough time for that I don't think, um, and it's really going to have to focus on, on more of the the grassroots stuff, on the ground stuff, maybe maybe even changing the composition of, of Congress, uh, maybe turning that into the focus rather than making it um, about the presidency. Um, but uh, uh, and and Biden may may provide us with a little more time to do that because um, I think a Biden administration will, while looking like will be horribly inadequate to tackling a lot of these crises, um, may pursue some you know some some good policies at least that that prevent um, the the very rapid deterioration of the environment uh, that Trump is overseeing. Um, but you know, I mean, I, you know, it's a, it's a bleak choice. It's a, it's a bleak choice. <laughs> I will say that. So it's not the uh, lesser of two evils this time. It's the whoever is less bleak than the other one. I guess so. You know, I mean, <laughs> I think the other the other worry with Trump is that with Republicans in power, um, they have another four years of of chance to one to to completely remake the the judiciary and their image and to create a, a complete roadblock to anything, any progressive legislation in the future um, uh, through the courts. 
But also, uh, you know, we just had that. Uh, there was a report by the New York Times about how Eric Prince, the uh, the former founder of Blackwater, right. uh, brother of Betsy DeVos, how he has been working with Project Veritas, this conservative uh, group, um, to to infiltrate left wing groups and liberal groups and to spy on them and that kind of thing. And there is a fear that that Trump, uh, you know, four more years of Trump could embolden uh, the, the the radical right to step these efforts up and to really try and uh, destroy, uh, you know, the burgeoning left uh, in the United States. I mean, you know, th- this is all complete speculation, but that is, I think, a worry with Trump. Um, and it's a worry with Biden as well, but, but I think to a slightly lesser extent. I also think Biden, unlike Trump, um, would be more responsive to uh, popular pressure from the left. Um, don't get me wrong, he'll ignore and belittle the left a lot um, on most issues. But I think on certain issues, um, especially if, if the Democrats want re-election, um, they will be responsive to pressure from the left on some things, um, as we saw with Obama on immigration and, um, and marriage equality. Uh, and again, with Trump, you would not get that at all. So there's, I, I think it I would say it makes more sense to to vote for Biden and then to organize against him. Um, uh, but again, that that is not a long term solution. I think that's that's just one of the many things that would have to happen under a Biden administration. Bronco, thank you so much for being on the show this week. Bronco Marchetich is author of the new book, Yesterday's Man, The Case Against Joe Biden. Bronco's co-host of the One of 200 podcast, which you can find on Twitter at One of 200 podcast. And you can follow Bronco on Twitter at B. Marchetich, thank you so much for being on our show this week. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me. Bringing you bong-hitting journalism since 1996, this is hell. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-tooth radio show host, podcast host, live-streaming host, Chuck Mertz. Producing this week's show is Alex Jerry. Alex will have more of your answers to this week's question from hell on tomorrow's show. This week's question from hell is, what's the best thing you can do for the world with your smartphone? What's the best thing you can do for the world with your smartphone? You can send us your response, your answer via Twitter, via email, via Facebook, the person who has our favorite answer which we will be announcing on tomorrow's show, will win a book that we featured on yesterday's show, Nicole Ashoff's book, The Smartphone Society, Technology, Power, and Resistance in the New Gilded Age. Alex, who is on tomorrow's Thursday's live show, streaming at 10 a.m. Chicago time here at thisishell.com. We're going to be talking with Sheree Pasternak and Hayden King, authors of the report Land Back, a Yellowhead Institute red paper, which is all about land dispossession, alienation, and resource extraction on indigenous land in Canada. So indigenous land, it's a paper on it. It's called a red paper because it's not a white paper, which is awesome. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed host, Chuck Mertz, producing Alex Jerry. I want to thank Bronco for being our guest today, Alex Jerry for producing. Thanks to Theron Humiston again for his work on putting in our new board. The planet's on fire. So, yes... This is hell. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com.